Welcome to CDW's Legal Inclusion Team Podcast, a series of conversations on diversity, equity, and inclusion for a more inclusive legal profession. I'm Gil Cubia, CDW's Director and Senior Counsel for Global Ethics and Compliance. And in this episode, I talk with CDW's Deputy General Counsel, David Ascandi, about his perspective on diversity, equity, and inclusion as an international lawyer. David Oskandi, it is my pleasure to welcome you to the show. Thanks, Gil. It's a pleasure to be here. Great to talk to you again. Yes, thank you for joining me. Well, I think that an excellent place for us to start is with your background. Can you tell me a little bit about what you do at CDW and maybe your career journey? Just a little bit about your role at CDW. Sure. Well, Gil, first of all, let me say that DEI is not a topic that most people give a lot of thought to in an international context. And so I commend you for expanding the discussion this way. I occupy a new position in the company with lead responsibility on the legal team for international M&A and strategic initiatives. I work with other teams at CDW dedicated to those areas that will take us into new territory, not only geographically, but technologically and commercially. Now, almost a year into my tenure, I see expectations growing and progress accelerating. It's an honor to be entrusted with contributing to the success of this pivotal moment in CDW's Well, with that and with your current role, what does diversity mean to you? Why does it matter to you? I live a diverse life and I do so by choice. I'm attracted to diversity both in my personal and professional life. We're lucky to live in Chicago, a city with a multitude of nationalities as they sometimes call it, the city of neighborhoods. Um, That's helped preserve the cultures of the huge variety of immigrants who settled here and created interesting fusions when they mingled. But of course, it also created problems when they tried to exclude others. I think my ethnic heritage reflects Chicago's evolution in the 19th and 20th centuries. On one side, a grandmother whose family arrived here from England and Germany in the 1800s, and an Irish grandfather whose family arrived much later. And on the other side, a mixture of Eastern European bloods, somewhat difficult to pin down according to the ancestry tests. (laughs) (laughs) I can, uh, yes, that that can be tough. So, um, but I grew up in the opposite kind of environment. Uh, The small, completely homogenous town I grew up in along the Fox River was determined to stay that way. My parents moved out from the city to this rural area, and we were in a distinct minority as Catholics, one of a few families. What was that like, David? Well, um, we were it as far as diversity went in that setting with our religion and non-Anglo last name except for the migrant workers who arrived every spring to work in the farmer's fields who were strictly segregated to the shacks on the farmer's land, except Mm. for fleeting appearances the children would sometimes make in school. Okay. So uh, given, given how distinctive we were, I guess that must be why the Ku Klux Klan met in a field in back of our house to scare us off. But we weren't the scaring type and watching my five foot two inch mother confront them <laughs> must have been a real lesson for me in standing up for yourself and for what's right. Yeah, she sounds like a real powerhouse. 
Well, um, you know, I think characteristic of the fighting Irish. Uh, yes, there you go. I'll attribute it to that heritage. <laughs> okay. So in school, I was forced to defend uh, a religion, my Catholicism, that I didn't really even understand at that age. But to the kids who would pick fights, it completely defined to them who I was. I suppose some of my drive to succeed came from my wanting to prove that I was more than the ugly labels they wanted to slap on me and express my power to define myself. Uh, I suppose some of my insistence on equity and equality and interactions and relationships throughout my life comes from that experience as well. That's very important. And, and those experiences are experiences that make you the authentic David Oscandy that you are today. <laughs> <laughs> well, and uh, you know, I appreciate that. It's uh, those hard experiencers are the ones that uh, have the biggest part in building us. Yes. Um, meanwhile, I remember my mother reading to my siblings and me about other places in the world, especially Mexico, because she said it was important for us as Americans to understand our neighbors. And many years later, I ended up marrying my wife, Marta Garcia Barragan Cordova, also a lawyer and a chilanga, ah. which is what they call people from Mexico City. Okay. Uh, which is where she's from. So we lived in Mexico City when we were first married, and I would end every day of work with a headache as my language skills tried <laughs> to catch up with the ideas I needed to express uh -huh. in a professional setting, no less. Uh, it made me realize how tough it is to be an immigrant and what determination it takes to persevere through the embarrassment of choosing the wrong word or not finding it at all knowing that some people won't look beyond that or look down on your accent. Yeah. But it also taught me about the rewards that await you when you keep trying little by little. You're able to enter another culture, or actually more than that, another existence more and more deeply, and a new world opens up to you uh, through how people talk, how they move, how they relate to the world around them through food, through music, through art, work, feelings, sports. Um, we and our sons, Santiago and Nico, still consider Mexico City our home as much as Chicago. But now we live on a busy street in Chicago on a block with a mix of different kinds of housing and a wide variety of people. Maybe this is as close as we can come to the high voltage, nonstop energy of Mexico City, a jumble of people from all walks of life parade by on the sidewalk in front of our house like a living mural day and night. We draw energy from it and our circle of friends that reflect the city's rich diversity we, div we value diversity because it's fun and satisfying. We also commit to fulfilling its unrealized potential, as my wife and I provided the inaugural contribution for initiating the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Fund at the Weinberg College of Arts and Sciences at Northwestern University. Wow, that's pretty impressive. We were, we were happy so, to uh, have the opportunity to do it, Gil. That's great. That's great. And in my professional life, I consciously set out to build a career that would satisfy my perpetual curiosity about the world and allow me to learn about new people, places, and things. Pursuing an international career has constantly offered me new challenges that stretch me to think in a different way about the world and my approach to it. I thrive on crossing cultural, professional, and national boundaries and never want to stop having that fun. So when it comes to crossing cultural and professional boundaries, what does diversity, equity, and inclusion look like in the international context? I mean, let's maybe talk about it from your professional uh, perspective. I mean, you have a very rich uh, personal background. 
how what does DEI look like when we bring it to that international landscape? Well, DEI is a U.S. export. Uh, even its packaging as a corporate acronym betrays its origins. Uh, with roots in a highly diverse population and legal principles forged through a great amount of struggle here in the U.S., it is a creature of U.S.-based multinationals and generally perceived that way outside of the U.S. Its migration outside of the multinational environment is spotty, of course, depending on where you are in the world, but it has succeeded in creating real change across a span of institutions as it has grown with multinationals intent on building their companies into global communities with a shared set of values that reflect individual dignity, respect, fairness, and inclusion. What I refer to as a sort of a corporate humanism. Would, would you say that um, in that context, DE&I is sort of a one-size-fits-all? Does it translate the same from the U.S. into the global workplace? Well, I, I think... Sometimes there's a temptation for admittedly well-meaning professionals in the international realm to reduce DNI to a formula, a kind of a one-size-fits-all template to deploy as provided from headquarters, but it loses its power and becomes monotone and alienating when we fail to tailor it to the unique aspects of a particular culture. For so this you- reason, I don't think it should even be considered a program. It's an approach, a perspective, an attitude that we shape to the specific circumstances at hand based on our core values as a company. By the way, I think lawyers can play a special role in expanding DEI internationally since we share a common language with the law along with a belief in the power of principles to affect change. So when we're looking at lawyers in that space and we're looking at uh, companies looking to grow Globally, how how does DNI foster that international growth? I consider DEI to be a strategic competitive advantage. Those companies that have figured out its value in building strong global teams, sharing core values that translate into trust, understand that those teams convey that same sense of trust to their customers. In both cases, it produces commitment and loyalty. Well, what that, is- yeah. I was going to ask you, you know, if we look at diversity, equity, and inclusion um, with respect to the international footprint, what are some of the benefits? Well, I would say the higher value output of diverse teams is well proven. We all know that by now. Fusing diverse perspectives, talents, backgrounds, experiences, and educations together in a global team creates a powerful force for challenging established paradigms and inspiring innovation. You know, I'd also say that approaching a global talent pool as a liquid resource enhances these benefits and unlocks the full potential of the team. Arranging talent as a liquid workforce, well, say for example, through a matrix that encompasses diverse subject matters and various geographical expertise with a simplified interface can foster interaction across boundaries and increase agility. Mission-oriented task forces and continuous knowledge sharing and enrichment enhance that impact. A liquid workforce can be even more powerful if we couple it with global exchange initiatives and mobility programs. So for a legal team, it allows us to scale up in a sense without actually adding more heads by being able to work within this sort of a matrix structure and provide localized solutions for our customers, wherever they might 
be located. Exactly right. It, it unifies the best attributes of a multinational with its global footprint and its local expertise. I like that. And as I noticed that our team continues to grow as, as our organization, organization expands. I mean, we've gone from 40 to 55, I believe, legal professionals in a very short period of time. So I think that's very important um, to be able to get the benefits from that team by viewing them as a global talent pool, in a sense. What are some other practices, David, that you could recommend with respect to DEI that could help companies drive international growth? We as leaders, through our lens of diversity, might look beyond traditional credentials to give greater weight to colleagues whose life experience translates to lifelong learners who are agile, skillful at navigating change, culturally adept and resilient. So consider, for example, a little girl born in a remote village in China to a poor family who didn't have enough food and clothes. She managed to survive the harsh environment only to undergo the extraordinary trauma of overhearing her father trying to sell her when she was 10 to enable the family's survival. She managed to stop the deal at the risk of her life. She found a way to graduate from a local college and from there to law school. Her resilience defies question. Uh, she sometimes tells me, I can take care of myself. <laughs> her problem-solving skills were sharpened in extremists again and again, even before she entered the workplace. Along the way, her love for learning was probably tested, proven, deepened, blended into her habit and mingled with her personality and, you know, in some ways probably acted as a, as a lifeline for her. Her life experiences translate into hardcore skills that are critical in today's workplace, such as agile adaptation, change management, cross-cultural communication, lifelong learning, and global mindset. These skills... I was, oh, going to, I was going to add resilience. Resilience, exactly. <laughs> Most importantly. And, you know, these skills should be able to compensate for, if not outweigh, weaker areas such as English language skills, especially in the international realm. After all, non-native speakers significantly outnumber native speakers. And most conversations in English involve at least one non-native speaker when you're doing international work. I can also, Gil, point to education about bias as having proven helpful in strengthening interactions on a team. And I think it could be especially helpful on a global team. You know, assumptions about other cultures act as barriers to establishing healthy, open relationships that depend upon mutual respect for the unique attributes of each individual. Have, can you tell us a time where um, you might have experienced those biases as being a part of a global team? Well, you know, I, even as an American, David, even as well, right. the US. And, uh, you know, I think uh, I think not only of myself, but maybe more importantly of the teams that I've led through the years. And, and I have seen um, many instances where bias has gotten in the way of healthy interaction. And uh, it's important as a leader to uh, to confront it, to deal with it and not to wish it away. So uh I guess one example would be that comes to mind. I put together a, a global team um, to work up a particular set of uh, tools and templates to improve our contracting posture with our customers. And I found that some of the team members walked in with a presumption of, let's say, less experience on the part of others just based on their backgrounds. And I, 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 I really 
I had to ask myself at first, am I really seeing this? Could this be? Um, they were from different parts of the world. And uh, I confirmed it. I watched more carefully. And I, I did confront it. And I made it clear that we were approaching this project as one team, as equals, and that my expectations um, would, would be that everybody act with equality, respect, and equity in uh, coming together to do the best job they could for the company. Um, I think when you encounter a situation like that, you, you really hope for people that they'll grow out of it, that they'll learn something and they'll become better people and better colleagues. And uh, not only that, but strengthen their own individual careers as a result once they open their minds and their, their mindset to a bigger world. Yeah, that, that makes sense. That makes sense. Having education about bias, I think is extremely important, but also having the opportunity to uh, work with a global team and have them experience the benefits uh, at the end of the day. I mean, I, I'd like to ask you at the end of the day, how, how did the, the team perform? I mean, what was the output like at the end? You know, they had this, maybe some tension early on, but they worked through it because they had a common goal. What was that output like? Was the quality of that uh, template, the template project, what did it look like, David? And what I'm asking is, did you see at the end of the day, despite those biases and early on, that the team was able to provide uh, a greater output with respect to the template project. Yeah, we we ended up with a very good product, and so I had a deliverable that made a made an instant impact with the business and improved our cycle times and uh, our relationship with our customers and our partners. I will, you know, I have to credit uh, the the resilience of the uh, the, the person on the team who was the object of, of the bias, uh, somebody who really persevered and delivered top quality interaction input throughout, despite uh, the stress of having to deal with people who clearly at first didn't want her there. I, again, you know, I think it's important as leaders to make our um, expectations clear. And I did make it clear that nobody was going to succeed on my team at the expense of someone else, and certainly not in, uh, in, in, in the context of bias, and that the best way to prove yourself on one of my teams is to show support to your colleagues and realize the, the potential you can achieve by working together in equality and equity to achieve a goal. That's great. That's great. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. It's often very important to hear the stories that others bring um, in order to perhaps <laughs> make a difference when we're talking about DEI and human issues just generally. Uh, one of our key values here at CDW is respect in the workplace. And I believe that story really sums that up, the importance of respecting our coworkers. Um, is there anything else, David, that you'd like to share uh, with our listeners as a closing argument? Anything, one message that you want our listeners to take away from our show today? Well, uh, Gil, let me take this opportunity to just comment on the important role technology plays in enabling international deployment 
of the principles of diversity, equity, and inclusion while also requiring their application. Technology has opened the way for more flexible work arrangements that became the new standard out of necessity during the pandemic. This creates an opportunity for full-time participation in the workforce for many people who were excluded by the need to adhere to rigid schedules and commitment to physical presence, uh, for example, due to carrying primary responsibility for family obligations, making the workforce more inclusive. It also enhances the opportunity for global team members to be seen and heard as technology breaks down physical barriers to interaction. CDW's place at the center of this massive shift in the way we relate to one another around the world creates tremendous potential for leadership in the DE&I arena. You know, at the same time, the principles of diversity, equity, and inclusion must underpin our technological expansion into the digital frontier and artificial intelligence to assure that it remains human-centered, yes, but in a way that does not reflect the stereotypes and bias that we know are part of the human experience and that the data we use to train artificial intelligence reflects. So I guess my closing argument has turned into an opening one as I hope to have the opportunity to address the fascinating topic of the place of diversity, equity, and inclusion in emerging technologies in a future podcast. I think that would be an excellent topic for us to cover. As we can see from today's discussion, the work of DEI is complex. And David, your insights about how DEI can help drive international growth, uh, along with you know, some of the stories you shared, help us to remember that our ability to embrace each other's differences and to hear each other's individual stories exemplifies, again, one of key, CDW's key values of respect in the workplace and leads to a more diverse and inclusive culture. So ultimately, all of this leads to actually the best solutions for our customers wherever they are in the world. And that's it for this episode. I'm Gil Cubia. See you next time.